Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an unbelievable conversation to share with you. I just spoke with the very intelligent uh, Dr. Gary Latterman. Gary is a professor at Emory University for over 20 years. He is an author and has written a number of amazing and interesting books. His most recent being Don't Think About Death, a memoir on mortality. Uh, and you know he writes about all sorts of subjects, including death, drugs, religion, and sexuality. And that is a in super interesting combination to me. And we talked today about the relationships between death and religion and psychedelics and drugs. And it was really a super amazing uh, conversation. I learned a lot and a lot of these things will be sticking with me for quite a while. So I'm sure you'll have a similar experience. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Dr. Gary Latterman. Hey, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really uh, happy to get the invitation. So for the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them a little bit about your background and what it is that you do? Sure. I'm a professor of religion at Emory University. I've been teaching there for a long time, maybe 25 years. Um, and um, a lot of my research is focused on um, the topic of death and the history of death and religion and American culture. So a lot of my publications are tied to that. Uh, but I'm also interested in um, religion and culture more broadly than just uh, the topic of death. Where, where did that interest in the topic of death, where did that stem from for you? Because it's such a, it's a very unique place to, uh, I'd say, center a career around. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would find that maybe uh, <laughs> hard to confront on a daily basis, never mind for uh, decades at a time. What, what was it for you that sort of compelled you to go in that direction? I like that you use the word unique uh, <laughs> as opposed to bizarre or uh, <laughs> overly morbid or something, uh, which it is all of that. But um, well, from for myself, uh, you know, I'm, 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 think a lot about how I got to this interest. And, and that's what the new book really looks at. Um, it's called uh, Don't Think About Death, a memoir on mortality. And it tries to chart my interests and, and um, kind of describe and narrate the ways in which um, my life is intersected with death and how also that's, um, you know, certainly led to the intellectual, more scholarly um, engagements that I've had with the topic. Uh, the origin point that I often refer to in my story, um, and I think we all have stories of, of how death has marked us and, and kind of shaped our consciousness and identity in some ways. Sure. Uh, but quickly for me, it was just a young guy, eight years old or so, and my uh, grandfather 
had a heart attack and died in our bathtub um, one evening. And, uh, you know, that was a pretty uh, traumatic uh, vision and, and just experience. And then the next day, uh, our rabbi came to the house, of course, and, and tried to help console us. He had me out in the backyard and was talking with me just privately um, and asked me if I understood the meaning of death, which you don't really ask an eight-year-old. But, uh, you know, I was like, well, I, you know, I, I don't even know what I said, but I'm sure I, I couldn't answer it. And then he proceeded to uh, say to me, and th this is very vivid in my mind, uh, he said, don't think about death. Life is for the living. You uh, really can help with your father and his grief and your mom help your father and so on. So, uh, you know, that, that is, a, is um, a kind of the point I often go back to when I think in terms of the bigger picture. So the rabbi told you not think about death and you decided to spite him and, uh, <laughs> and build a career off of, uh, off of the deeply studying death and, and the way that it affects people. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, exactly. It's, it's I, cool. I think I, I failed him in some ways. And, and on the <laughs> other hand, he kind of spurred me on to whatever my life has become. Well, that's, that's an incredible story. And then where, where did it go from there? What, what sort of, uh, you know, cause I think for, for some people, you know, or, or a lot of people, you know, everybody is going to experience death to some degree in their lifetime, you know, whether it's a family member or what have you. Um, but to take that interest into the scholarly realm, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, again, another leap forward. What, what was that for you? In my story, it really, um, was, uh, uh, a underlying, um, I wouldn't call it obsession, but interest, just thinking about death, whether it was in the music I was listening to or films, you know, as a young teenager, it was everywhere. Uh, and I wasn't a real serious guy, uh, or I was serious about some things, <laughs> like having fun and partying when I was a teenager. I didn't take school seriously at all. Um, and uh, it took me a while to get into college and, and to start up college and to take that seriously. But there was a point, certainly as an undergraduate, um, when it became pretty clear to me that, you know, if I'm going to continue to study um, uh, and learn, I, I really knew that I was mostly interested in death because when you get down to it, what, what else is there? I mean, you know, this is getting to the heart of what it means to be alive and, and who we are and, and um, you know, what we think about our time here. And so that, that, that stuck with me as an undergraduate. I was a psychology major, um, and uh, and then um, well, I finished this as a psychology major. But but near the end of my time as an undergraduate, I started taking religion courses, religious studies courses, uh, not theology. You know, this is state school, Cal State Northridge, um, and you know, it was just totally stimulating. I was so into that approach to think about death. Uh, and, and so that got me into graduate school in religious studies and, and then it was, uh, and then it was on. Got it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's amazing how that segue is, you know, it's a natural segue when you think about death, it's really, you know, it's, it's such an unknown, uh, in every human experience. And then, uh, you know, that's how have different civilizations, cultures, uh, and people throughout history been able to confront that mystery, um, and how do they weave it into their religious traditions? And so, uh, I mean, I, 
I find it uh, equally as interesting. It's, it's really a, you know, remarkable thing to try to wrap your head around how many how different people have approached this same situation. You're right on. And, and, and that's where it really gets um, interesting and deep is when you start thinking across cultures and through time and how um, humans have in a variety of ways confronted the reality of death um, and thought about the universal question of what should be done with the dead body. Um, though those kinds of uh, questions really open up great insight into into different cultures, into f- different religious sensibilities, and so on, um, and can lead to a I think a greater and better understanding of our own culture, of what we're doing now. You know, with death. Although certainly in this time of uh, COVID, and and you know that that dimension to our lives. Um, you know, we, we're, we're, I don't know if we're fully prepared for, you know, what, um, how to confront death, you know, in, in the contemporary, uh, period, despite whatever knowledge we might bring to the present moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I find that, uh, super interesting thing about how people approach what to do with the body starting there. Uh, just because, you know, we, we oftentimes could think that we probably have the most sane, rational, maybe scientific view about what we do. Um, whereas, you know, it, there seems to be something sort of lacking in our sort of, let's say, if you call it a death ritual or whatever, what have you, where what we do might not, uh, especially in the time of COVID where people are isolated and, you know, not able to sort of do what we have done in the past. Um, it's a, it's a very unique time to see sort of how that ritual plays out and it, if it's having sort of the effect on our experience as maybe uh, in a more ancient society that was more in tune with nature might, might experience that, uh, that experience. Yeah. I, I'm uh, amazed at uh, the, again, that variety, the diversity of ways people have um, um, confronted uh, mortality and, and then responded to it. Um, and so to me, that's I teach this death and dying class um, at Emory. I've been teaching it for a long, long time, and um, that's built in. You know, we really before we even start thinking about America and our own um, situation, we really try to uh, look at Native American perspectives on death, or Hindu perspectives on death, or Buddhist perspectives on death, and so on. Um, and you know, we, there's a variety of, of, of backgrounds in my class, you know, in terms of students in my classes, but, um, you know, for the most part, when you expose them, even if it's at a very uh, admittedly superficial level to this variety of different uh, perspectives, it's can, you know, it uh, it can be disorienting in some ways, um, but also open up uh, intellectually some new ways of thinking and some new questions, like you're saying about our, you know, why are we doing what we do with uh, our dead and how satisfactory is that? How meaningful is that? How, how, um, how, how helpful is that in, in our own confrontations with mortality? Absolutely. I'm curious with, you know, your background and knowledge, is there any common threads that you have noticed or seen through other cultures or societies that we just blatantly ignore in our own? Uh, I don't know about blatantly ignore. I think it's, uh, you know, always a struggle to think about, um, you know, how we think about the corpse, what we think of identity, 
is it eternal you know is it there's substance to who we are and who we think we are um in some way and in some form that will uh, last eternally um and there are questions about our relationships to the dead um that i i find you know very common in most cultures is, is thinking about how uh, ritually and in terms of memory um and in terms of uh, you know both everyday life and extraordinary experiences how how different cultures um maintain certain relationships with the dead um so even i mean this is you know a good point even as you recognize and see an incredible uh span and spectrum of different approaches to death uh, you know there are some obvious common points of reference we're all mortal we're all you know this physical body you know we all have a great deal of attachment to our body and the body of those we love and who are in our community um and so uh, when life is no more you know everything is uh, really put into play and at stake and and so you know that's what culture is all about dealing yeah. with death giving people the resources to deal with uh with with mortality and 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 the resource resources to carry on in the face of all that yeah it's interesting um i noticed that you had a book uh about the funeral home and uh how that sort of came about in american uh just in our tradition and i'm curious if you could shed some light on that because i think a lot of people don't realize how it's still a very new uh, sort of advent, especially when you look at, uh, you know, across all of history, you know, we have this thing that sort of popped up just in maybe the past uh, 100 or, you know, 100 so odd years, um, that it's it's such a new thing, but it's, it's part of such an internal, uh, you know, important, you know, again, ritual of our, you know, experience of our lives. Yeah, it's uh, and a very unique and interesting uh, history and story to that funeral home. Um, I won't go on and on. Uh, but I, 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 as I mentioned, I have these. I have two books. Uh, one um, is called "The Sacred Remains," and it looks at the impact of the Civil War in the 19th century on attitudes toward death and and practices around the the dead body. So quickly, that book, you know, basically um, ends with the birth of the funeral home um in the later part of the 19th century and and the civil war is an important pivotal point well for a lot of reasons but in terms of this story um and that's because it opened up the door to embalming before the civil war no embalming before the civil war no funeral home you know maybe some undertakers in in larger cities but very different uh, uh script and setup so after the Civil War, and, and Abraham Lincoln's body is an important uh, uh, um, player in the story. Um, his body is embalmed and um, publicly presented uh, so, so people could come and visit uh, to, um, I think it's 20 different cities, you know, when he made his funeral journey. Um, so, you know, that literally opened people's eyes to embalming and that helped to legitimate that practice um in american death rituals mm -hmm. so uh the key point here is is that the the embalming became the foundation stone for the emergence of the funeral director and the funeral home 
who would make the argument that you know they have the expertise and the skills um, to in a, in a way that's uh, meaningful to family members and friends present the dead in a very kind of public way again uh, to the living as part of the final funeral ceremony so the presence of the dead and the visibility um, was was key in the early part of the 20th century and 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 as I said really set the stage for um, what would become you know, ultimately a multi-billion dollar industry um, in, in terms of uh, funeral homes and the, the expanding uh, commercialization of, of, of funerals. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit extra interesting to me. I, I actually, my great-grandfather and my grandfather ran a funeral home in Wakefield, Massachusetts for, uh, you know, it re- remained the Butler funeral home for a full century throughout the, uh, you know, 1900. So it's very much, you know, sort of part of my family's uh, a life to be sort of in that environment. And so, um, you know, it's sort of something that clicked to me when I saw, you know, how it's such a unique uh, or s- sort of a, such a new advent that it's sort of like, you know, uh, it was, it was an innovation at the time. And to us, you know, to me, it seems as old as anything else, any, any other, you know, tradition, but, um, on the span of American history and human history, it's a very new thing. So it's interesting to see how maybe this tradition or this experience is very, uh, could be foreign to a lot of other uh, societies or cultures. It'd be, it could be perceived as even strange or weird, uh, what we do to the dead. Uh, absolutely. And that is, um, uh, has been a big um, source of criticism for uh, the funeral industry. Um, some of the harshest critics are from people who are outside of uh, and have sort of aren't American. And I'm thinking in particular of, of uh, one of the most important uh, voices in this longer history of funeral homes in America. And that's Jessica Midford, who wrote the book, The American Way of Death in uh, 1962 or three. And it was just a harsh, you know, flame throwing critique uh, of the funeral industry and how bizarre it is and having these embalmed bodies is just, you know, so disgusting and morbid and a sign of denial, you know, so she, she's definitely, um, as you're saying, like others uh, around the globe at a certain time would, would have the same uh, reaction, totally bizarre. And yet it became ingrained in, in American culture and in a sense naturalized i mean for most of the 20th century it was just like it was just for the most part what every american did i mean there are obviously exceptions but it became a tradition the american tradition Um, and that's the second book is called rest in peace and it looks at sort of the rise of the funeral home and and some of the arguments uh, in favor and some of those that are, are against it but the point um from my point of view was was um to try to present a more complex picture more nuanced than than midford's uh, depiction and to actually try to um, explore and discuss the ways in which you know this fit in quite naturally with american cultural sensibilities and values and consumer desires so, um, you know, that's, uh, that's what makes the train run. And, and whether you think it's bizarre or not, there, there's enough um, of, of a um, 
strong consumer uh, um, support for it that uh, that will make sure it doesn't go away. However, her book, Jessica Mitford's book, and then a lot of, of what's taking place in the 1960s across the board uh, really begins to challenge and disrupt what had been this more uh, hegemonic tradition um, around what we do with our dead. Yeah, it's really, that's interesting. So what, what uh, were some of those, uh, I guess, alterations or what's some of the uh, alternate, alternative means that people have uh, seeked, you know, maybe after reading that? No question that cremation uh, enters the scene and becomes a viable option after Midford, and not immediately, and not across the country. Uh, but cremation, certainly in the bigger cities, and particularly in the West Coast and Northwest, but other areas too, really begins to pick up steam as an option to dispose of the dead. You know, don't, you know whether they're embalmed or not is a whole other set of questions but mostly it was uh, the choice of you can burn the bodies um, also you have uh, increasing numbers of people who don't want the body present at the funeral ceremonies and sort of the, the rise of um, memorial ce ceremonies or, or what I think ultimately becomes what we know as uh, uh, celebrations of life that really focus more on the memory and the personality um, of, of the individual who's died uh, rather than, you know, having the body as the central focal point in, in how people uh, congregate and, and think about um, the passage uh, that is so important in, in funeral rites, um, the passage of the body out of the land of the living into sure. uh, wherever it's on its way to. Um, so, so after, you know, the 60s in general lead to a, a kind of a more willingness to challenge authority and traditions. Um, and certainly the introduction and great popularity of Hinduism and Buddhism and so-called Eastern religions also, you know, begins to shape and create new attitudes toward death that have, you know, more to do with reincarnation. Um, than you know, the return of Christ. Yeah, sure. And I mean, what's interesting, you know, as you mentioned that about how the different uh, religions have uh, influenced our perception of how to go about this ritual. What's interesting to me in general is how uh, it seems that there is somewhat of a disconnect between the, you know, sort of funeral embalming or uh, cremation experience and how the, that's sort of disconnected from what your spiritual or religious beliefs might be and how you sort of can maintain an option there. Um, whereas my, my guess would be that in sort of other cultures or societies that that would be much more mainline, like there's one thing that you can do, or there's one more, um, you know, there's a tradition that sort of flows in line with the overall spiritual belief uh, of the people of the culture. Um, so it's interesting to me just to see how sort of in the secularized United States, we still sort of like maintain those like product options, essentially. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, that's interesting how you put it. And I, I, for me, what it leads me to think of is what is, um, you know, one of the more uh, increasingly popular ways to describe your own sense of, of, of your spirituality. And that's when you, talk about being spiritual but not religious 
you know, this is the really, at least for um, up until recently, the fastest growing segment of the American population, the people who, in terms of religion, will claim none, you know, N-O-N-E. Yeah. Um, but may have all kinds of spiritual um, uh, connections and, and um, attachments and engagements. So what I, I think you're saying is right. You know, there are ways in which... Um, people can go through the formality of a more institutional practice, um, but not necessarily be spiritually aligned with uh, the kinds of more conventional religious language and um, um, uh, discourse uh, that might be coming through um, from the funeral director or from the uh, local religious leader who is officiating at the funeral. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's quite interesting to me because, you know, what you mentioned there, I can speak on it from, you know, sort of like a millennial perspective is when you look at the religions that are available out there, you know, all of them sort of seem, it, it's hard to connect with them. I think in a way that maybe, uh, you know, previous generations were able to, uh, because there's such a, you know, further, it's a disconnect between sort of like how that, religion like the literal translation or the literal tried uh, interpretation of like the bible versus uh you know sort of the very fact-driven world that we live in today where everything is available on the internet at any moment's notice it's hard to sort of uh i think for younger people to buy into some of these biblical metaphors when we're in such like a sterile truth environment mm -hmm. um but that you know this sort of goes into the next thing that i wanted to ask you about which is sort of how in america and in uh, in general, we are sort of rediscovering much of this, you know, that you're describing people that don't identify with a religion, but still identify as somewhat spiritual in some way and how that relates to the use of psychedelics and different uh, drug experiences. Oh yeah. Another uh, one of my favorite topics for sure. Uh, thinking about the connections between drugs and religion. Um, uh, yeah. The, the, there's a lot going on there for sure. Uh, but I would uh, quickly say, um, and, and, and sort of bouncing off of what you were just saying, that, yeah, there is a way in which the traditional conventional religions that have been so um, central for people who have to make sense of death or suffering um, or uh, pleasure, um, or, you know, ensure stability and order, you know, while, while those traditional religions used to provide us with all of uh, the tools that we need to deal with all those things, they don't as much anymore. Um, you know, certainly uh, you know, we, we see an increasing um, diversification and, and um, all kinds of different alternative forms of Christianity. Uh, as well as Judaism, as well as uh, Islam, um, as well as uh, Buddhism. I mean, that's part of the the challenge and excitement of studying religion is, you know, kind of um, drilling deeper than just this, the, the uh, label that we use, you know, because Christianity really doesn't mean anything, you know, because yeah. it's such incredible diversity. So, so even though, you know, those are traditional notions of religion, um, uh, are in many ways being challenged and in many ways and, in, and for many people being diminished in our lives. That doesn't mean we're being, that people are less religious. 
and this is part of my take on this whole religion question, and that is we're all religious in some way. We all find ways to answer those questions and deal with those realities. And so if the traditional forms of religion aren't working, there are other sources, sources uh, for kind of sacred understandings and um, investments in, in, in trying to respond to and think about those kinds of questions. And drugs, I think, are, uh, well, not only the future for many Americans, but uh, a big part of uh, thinking about uh, religion historically and in the present as well. And psychedelics, um, as, as we're seeing now in so much of the coverage on psychedelics and medicine, that the kind of spiritual uh, possibilities that are uh, associated with and described in some of, of these studies, um, I think are going to be really quite um, um, exciting and appealing to, to Americans who, who really, again, aren't finding what they need um, in the church or the mosque or the temple or what have you. Yeah, it's, um, it, you know, and it's interesting to see how this sort of psychedelic experience throughout time has been uh, one that helps people confront death. And, you know, it's sort of uh, confronting death and acknowledging death in your living state, you know, even, you know, earlier in life. Um, I've had, you know, I'm sure you're probably aware of the what's going on with uh, maps and the uh, and the development of uh, MDMA and psilocybin for use of, uh, you know, and antidepressants and uh, anti-anxiety and anti-PTSD sort of situations. Uh, and it's uh, really interesting to hear these stories of people who are in the end of life experiences, having a couple of treatments of MDMA and, and now having a, a new perspective on confronting death and being able to work through that. And then you hear very similar experiences of, um, of people, you know, that have taken some of these substances that now have a new perspective on life because of their sort of acceptance of death and that sort of thing. Right on again. I think this is, um, a theme that seems to be, uh, surfacing quite a, a bit as we are learning more and more about, um, you know, not just the experiences and how people describe them, but what the after effects are and what are the more long-term kind of changes in perspective and attitudes. And they're, you know, they're, they're doing this research. Um, and clearly, you know, death and that encounter with death that can happen while someone's stripping uh, or having some kind of mystical experience that's drug induced can, um, can really, um, if not alter, transform, um, as you're saying, not only ideas about what happens after we die, but also uh, ideas about how am I supposed to live now that I know this truth, you know, now this truth has been revealed to me. And so, you know, what we're talking about, this is what, jesus did for people you know this is what the buddha did for people this you know this is what religion does it answers the same questions even though um, it's a different set of answers uh well i mean some might make different arguments about that <laughs> some might say that there's a lot of similarity in the answers uh depending on on how you think about comparative religion and so on uh but i i, I agree i mean the, what we're seeing with psychedelics uh, to me is um, uh, really just uh, 
another form of, of religious life and engagement and understanding. Yeah. And it's, you know, the more I've learned over the past year, uh, you know, sort of in this same vein is that it, it, it seems like there's a deep history of psychedelics being interwoven with the religious traditions that, you know, sort of been overlooked or it's kind of mysterious to us uh, through, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, details that have been passed down through history. It's, it's hard for us to, to discover that. I, I just recently had, um, the guy, Brian Murescu on the podcast, um, who has an incredible, incredible book, the immortality key, where he talks about this. And oddly enough, I was just reading in a Will Durant book on ancient Greece about the mystery of Eleusis also. And it's sort of, you know, it's something that was very much tied to their religion and their practicing beliefs and, uh, you know, the, the people who experienced that, that, that ritual, whatever it was, uh, you know, claimed to come out the other side with, you know, like a sense of immortality. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's just amazing what, you know, it could still be discovered about, you know, what is in the religious tradition and how it relates to psychedelics that maybe has been lost to us, but people are rediscovering uh, more so now than ever before. That's how it's uh, being described by some a kind of rediscovery of 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 ancient or or submerged knowledge and traditions and and the immortality key certainly has helped help to put that on the on the map of popular culture um but as you say it's one of of many terence mckenna there are all kinds of people who have been writing on this stuff for for quite some time um and do um show the uh, very intimate connections between religious history and and altered states of consciousness and that's fascinating to someone who studies religion and thinks about religion because it's um certainly hasn't been in the curriculum and not so much in in terms of people's uh, research in this field but um i think that's beginning to change quite dramatically yeah i mean in your time when you were first uh you know in your college years discovering or taking these courses on religion was there even the slightest notion of this, or is this something that, you know, has sort of been an alternative take that sort of developed over time? Uh, There was no, uh, really not, I'm trying to think back, not really, no, not much attention at all to this kind of data, you know, and and thinking that uh, drugs in some form can be um, used to better understand people's religious uh, lives and orientations. So not so much. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I've been, I turned to this topic much later in my professional life <laughs> um, as a topic of, of scholarly research. Uh, that's, that's really, um, really been only a few years. And I mean, there, there are people who for sure have, have looked at some of these connections, um, but not many. And I'm uh, expecting this is this is going to be a, a, a growth area in terms of research and, and really thinking about where the action is, you know, to, to understand um, religion in our lives. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like, you know, the more that we go uh, back and forth on it, that there's just this endless sort of eternal relationship between death, religion and some sort of psychedelic experience that, you know, is just... Uh, it's absent in today's, you know, uh, in today's world in a lot of ways, but you know, there's just the, the emergence is just coming. It's like cresting over the horizon where people are starting to acknowledge this in maybe a way that, uh, hasn't come about before. And then I'm also curious how that's going to tie back to, you know, uh, maybe even like our, 
the way that we do funerals and rituals and things like that, if this, you know, sort of is injected into the American culture in a way where it's much more, uh, you know, normal or uh, many more people have experienced it, how that'll actually affect some of these rituals like the funeral home, like the the way that the embalming that we do today, will we continue doing those things or will that completely shake up a lot of our traditions? Will we be essentially building a, building a new in a lot of ways? I wonder, I, I, I agree. As this becomes more accepted and mainstreamed, I mean, we are coming out of, of the war on drugs. Um, and so that's uh, certainly been a factor and a force in keeping this kind of knowledge and these kinds of experiences um, outside of the um, public imagination or, or um, you know, using different kinds of representations of these experiences that are um, factually inaccurate, but, but help to shape people's attitudes and fears about them. So we're coming out of that now. And medicine, for sure, is legitimizing these drugs as therapy. Um, um, but but the religious consequences and impact you're right we don't know um, how how that will translate um, and then uh, what that'll mean for uh, our practices and our rituals um, when we you know have an experience that's mystical and our ego dissolves and we realize uh, our bodies are an illusion you know you know maybe we, people will start composting human bodies which yeah. they're doing by the way uh, and and uh, there there is a, a project that's doing that kind of thing that's uh, in i believe in Oregon but but seriously um but i mean again it's like you know what is this body and and why do people want to give it so much attention you know when it's there's no any no longer any life in it um you know that may change how we think about the mortal coil, you know, what, what we are physically and how that relates to some larger ultimate truth about our existence, our identity, um, and, and what happens after we die. Yeah. I think, uh, I think I saw what, uh, something similar to de or, or composting the body, uh, something where you could be, uh, converted into a tree, essentially they're, they're going to plant the tree with your I don't know, composted remains or something. Uh, but it's very interesting because, yeah, that could be, you know, uh, we could fast forward 200 years and maybe that's what everybody does. Yeah, well, uh, certainly this uh, green burial and thinking about um, death in, in, in a more environmental sort of framework is uh, is a part of that trend. I mean, these are trends that are happening already. Although, again, COVID and what we're living with now, uh, you know, is definitely um you know um halted a lot of those trends or you know have have has really had an impact on on whatever was happening before this period and how it's going to look as you're saying into the future after um hopefully we get through uh, what we're going through now is hard to really hard to predict yeah absolutely it's it's a it's such an interesting time right now with with the covid going on uh because of how disrupting, but all in a way it's disrupting uh, so many different things, but in another way, it's sort of preventing other things from developing along the course that they were on. I mean, where, where do you sort of land on, on this in general, as it relates to people's livelihood, their spirituality? Like, do you, 
do you have any thoughts on how this whole pandemic and situation has, has uh, impacted people in these ways? It's, it's maybe um, beyond any uh, of our comprehension to really kind of get at this point, a, a real sense of what it's all going to mean in the longer run. Um, I'm going to be teaching death and dying uh, this coming semester for Emory undergrads. And, you know, how can we're not, you know, obviously we, we can't not deal with the pandemics, you know, not just COVID, but also um, the violence toward blacks and racism and thinking about um, the African-American experiences with death, um, you know, given the kind of racism um, that is so much a part of American history. So, um, so those are tough topics. I mean, uh, in general, but also uh, for 18, 19 year old young adults and, and uh, death and dying as a course in general is, is um, challenging uh, and, and can be difficult, but also really great, you know, great fun to be honest. But this time around, it's going to be different because we're going to have to struggle with and, and wrestle with like, you know, what, how, you know, how do we understand death um, going forward, given what we are having to deal with now in terms of, um, you know, how we handle bodies, whether we can be close um, with the dead or with the dying, you know, so much has is, is really um, been, been just completely dramatically radically altered because of this um but uh, you know also many people have said i mean we're just living with a kind of existential dread and and fear that i uh, you know is you know hard to um find uh in american history you know speaking just about america uh this is really existentially i think kind of unprecedented time and um how we're going to turn out spiritually, whether people are going to go back to their traditional religions, you know, back to the more familiar or conventional resources that have been used before to make sense of life, or, you know, is all of this time, um, hold up and, you know, being, you know, um, um, quarantined or, or, you know, kept in your own home for so long, is that going to actually kind of blow open, uh, the, the possibilities for people to, um, find on their own resources to make sense of all this and think about, well, you know, what is, what does this mean for my re religious life and what, what, what is sacred to me, you know, under these conditions. So, so the certainly kind of reevaluation and, 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 um, um, trying to, um, I think for many people find ways to, to, to regenerate and strengthen their spiritual resilience in, in, in whatever way they can uh, to, to try to get through this. And, and, and as we know, it's there's just, there's going to be more death and more problems with, with hospitals and um, people who are suffering. And, 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 and in addition to the crazy political scene we're all in right now, yeah, I mean, I was going to say that there's it's it's one thing to deal with, uh, you know, a deadly disease and a pandemic in the way that we are, but also just the political thermostat is has never been higher, uh, you know, between the election and all, you know, everything that's going on with with the media and sort of uh, everyone having a different uh, 
there's very much a divide in, in the information that people are receiving across uh, media networks. And uh, it creates, you know, this very, uh, very tense situation where anxiety and depression are off the charts. Uh, people are, you know, mentally having a, a, a very challenging time, probably more so now than I think, I, I mean, I would say really ever before, just because of we're in such uncharted territory with the amount of media stimulation that is even available to any given person with our phones in our pockets and social media and, uh, you know, instant alerts on your phone and that sort of thing. It's, we're sort of in a, in a, in totally uncharted territories with this amount of constant stress and, and, uh, and pain and challenge. And that's where it's, it's particularly interesting to me to imagine, you know, it's like, where is religion in all this? Where is spirituality in all this? Because in, in a lot of senses, you know, you're, you're not able to go to church, um, in a lot of places, but it's like in a lot of ways, I wonder if that was not the case, if people would be, if, if it would be a higher volume of it, or if uh, people are sort of going in a different direction and finding content like yours, um, reading books like yours and, uh, you know, and, and approaching death and, uh, and religion in a completely different way. I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, about yeah. that, uh, but I, I'm, I'm hoping I can offer some, uh, some kind of um, contribution to, to this mess um, that we're in. And I would also, just going off of what you just said, uh, again, I'm, I'm shifted back to drugs. Again, you know, you know, for me, my interest in drugs is what you're doing right now, which is coffee. Um, and I don't know if there's coffee in there, but whatever. Definitely coffee. Um, so, you know, it's not just psychedelics, but, you know, coffee, um, prescription drugs, alcohol, cannabis. I mean, those are, I, I, again, I don't have any um, evidence for this. I've done any studies, but, my, my, you know, my sense is that those are important, critical substances for, for survival uh, or for, you know, maintaining order. You know, you got to make sure that cup of coffee's ready to go in the morning. I mean, yeah, again, even though people won't, this is part of the challenge of like, what I'm, what I'm doing or what I'm, I'm trying to suggest is um, that, that people are, are religious in ways they may not recognize. And so to sort of focus on drugs as sacred objects and psychoactive substances as serving same kind of purposes as, as what religion has in the past um, and not even getting into the neurochemical similarities that exist um, between um, certain kinds of religious experiences and, and drug use in terms of brain activity. Uh, I think that that's, you know, um, worth, worth considering, you know, that, that let's not necessarily just talk about God and the Bible when we're talking about the, the religious um, investments the religious uh, connection connections um the religious forms of life that that um again may not be so recognizable uh, on first glance yeah it's that's really interesting to think about how you know even you know maybe someone who smokes a cigarette every few hours how much that would relate to you know it's like sort of a ritual to them it's a tradition to them and it, it it's a critical part of their mental health and a critical part of their daily experience and how that's got to be very similar to uh, someone in a devout religion who's, you know, doing their daily rituals. It might sound sacrilegious <laughs> to some people, but it's, uh, you know, that's, um, I, I think, a really uh, rich and fascinating area to pursue if you study religion. You know, what are the rituals in our lives 
that we rely on to maintain, as I say, maintain order and stability. This is what I would refer to as um, really it's what my advisor at Santa Barbara refers to um, as ordinary religion. You know, they're, they're, she, she, her name's Catherine Albanese, she, and she talks about um, thinking about religion along the spectrum of ordinary religion and extraordinary religion. And so the ordinary religion is sort of cultural. It's, it's it, the culture that we live in, and it is the sort of everyday world that we live in that still has um, religious uh, resonances. You know, drinking coffee every morning or having a glass of wine, you know, with dinner, um, you know, even just meals that, that these are important rituals, even though they're, you know, we don't think too critically about them. And then the other extreme, of course, is like taking LSD and the mystical experience or, um, you know, meditating uh, and, 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 you know, engaging in other kinds of spiritual practices that can bring, you know, bring you to a, a, a higher ecstatic state. I mean, religion can mean a lot of different things, and it's tied into a lot of different kinds of human activities. Um, and then once you break out of, you know, just what do Christians think religion is, or what do Jews think religion is, um, and and start looking at, again, indigenous cultures or um, other other ways of life that are more, you know, maybe based on philosophy, than some kind of revelation, you know, you really can, you can see the, a real complicated landscape of, uh, in human history in, in terms of how people, uh, uh, you know, uh, live out their religious life. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had never, con- never thought of it that way. Um, and how many similarities there are. It's, it's, that is, uh, I'm sure that's going to be sticking with me for a while after this. Well, um, uh, that's great. I, I, I um, it, it's uh, fun to kind of really uh, expound the boundaries of what you know you might consider religion, and that's 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 the approach I take in my classes for sure. Um, we went through a lot of this in the sacred drugs class that I mentioned. Uh, that you know, looking at those similarities and parallels, and it blew their minds. You know, the students were just—I I mean, I—I I don't hesitate to say it. They—they they just from what they walked in with to what they left with, uh, you know, uh, I, I know was um, a completely topsy-turvy, turned upside down perspective on, you know, uh, on, on what religion might be, on how, you know, they understand religion and uh, what counts as religion. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I'm sure, especially a college age student with, you know, not much thought into this previously. It's got to be a real mind bender. I, that's what I, that's what I aim for. <laughs> to bend their minds, to blow their minds up or whatever. But, you know, I remember it happening to me and, and um, I, uh, you know, also um, know a lot more than I did then. And uh, it's, you know, we're in a very different kind of cultural landscape um, uh, from, when I was in college, mm-hmm. in the 80s to today, but students uh, that are coming into my class are, are smart and they know a lot and they have a lot of ambitions, um, but they don't get a lot of time to just reflect on the big questions of like death and 
meaning and um, suffering, you know, these kinds of things that, um, that, that whether they like it or not, uh, inevitably they're going to be thinking about and confronting and living, you know, having to live with them. So, so this is, uh, you know, a space for them, you know, where it's not economics or political science or uh, biology, but it's just, uh, let's think together about some of the religious dimensions of our lives. That's incredible. I love that. And I'm sure it's a very great opportunity for them that they may not experience elsewhere in their college career. So that's, that's really something. I'm, I'm curious if I could ask you about uh, an idea that I've stumbled across and I don't really know how to grapple with it, which is sort of this, and this kind of relates to the, to the COVID pandemic and everything, which is science as religion and how much, you know, we're sort of, you know, even like take the phrase that we were all hearing a lot, like trust the science, you know, and uh, things like that, where, you know, there's seems to be this modern uh, viewpoint where science should be trusted above all, you know, and, you know, especially like it's kind of tossing, you know, religion or spirituality aside, like science is where it's at, where, you know, when you look at science and what science is about, it's about the scientific method and, and, proving it. And so, and science itself is like a debate and it's meant to be, uh, be able to stand on its own and defend itself from other claims and other hypotheses. Uh, so to say, trust the science is like saying like, trust the debate. And I think a lot of people actually think of it as more of trust this one hardline perspective, uh, from some accredited scientists. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm happy to say I wrote a chapter on that. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I, I have a, a chapter on science in uh, this book I wrote called Sacred Matters, um, which um, the subtitle is Celebrity Worship, Sexual Ecstasies, The Living Dead, and Other Signs of Religious Life in the U.S. So uh, that looks at um, each chapter is a different, what I would call kind of a, a sacred source of, of religious life uh, for Americans that is often, you know, I mean, is not really recognized as a source for religious life. So, you know, my chapters, I look at sexuality, I look at film, I look at sports, I look at celebrity, um, I look at medicine, and I look at science. And so I'm, I, I definitely see what you're saying, which is if you broaden out the definition of religion, and thinking about how people, uh, where people put their faith, what are the key rituals that uh, we turn to in life? Who do we turn to when we have to deal with sickness or health? I mean, science is the the uh, focal point, the cultural authority, in for the most part, for many people in our world today. And it has a sacred status in, in, in ways that, um, again, might not at first glance, um, uh, you know, seem evident, but that I think if you dig deeper, you can see it. And um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think that you're on to it. And there are others who have written about the ways in which science and, and religion have many parallels. People in science for the most part, don't like to hear that, right? I mean, that kind of uh, subverts or undercuts a lot of, you know, what they're, what they're striving for, what their, you know, their main values are. 
in terms of, um, you know, what it means to be scientific. Uh, but still, those have, I think, as you were suggesting, a kind of sacred value. You know, they're unquestioned and they are, you know, um, uh, uh, understood as uh, the means to truth and to explaining the world that we're in. And, and so they function in many ways religiously. Yeah, it's, it's um, amazing because science can start at a completely different place from religion, maybe, you know, evidence versus faith. Uh, however, they're sort of on a trajectory to overlap at some point, you know, once you get into the advanced sciences, into, you know, physics and theoretical physics and, you know, particles and, you know, all that sort of stuff, uh, you end up in this place where they are intersecting in a way where we, you know, there's, it's hard to distinguish one from the other when uh, we're talking about the source of life or the source of the universe. And, um, and it's, you know, and I think while a lot of people maintain that they're two completely separate things, that they are much more closely related than, than we would typically uh, consider. Absolutely. And, and there, you know, it's not just you and me thinking this, there's a longer history of people who have written about this and um, especially coming out of the sixties and into the seventies, you know, the famous book called the Tao of physics by uh, Fritzoff Capra, I think his name is, but it's very much, you know, not using so much Christianity or the monotheistic religions, but looking again, East, um, in terms of Eastern spirituality and seeing, as you're describing, this overlap between what is being discovered in physics and sort of these higher forms of science and what some of the teachings are in Hinduism and Buddhism. And, and that's a long narrative. I mean, that's, that's been written about, and I think um, there are some who are in the sciences who, who would accept that. And we're very comfortable thinking about these connections. Another uh, book is um, I'm trying to remember now called the, "The Sacred Depths of Nature," that was, that was written by um, a biologist whose last name is Good Enough, and I can't remember her first name. Uh, well, but it's good enough. It's good. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's an interesting. Again, it's it's just you know religion and science. If you can expand, uh, you know, the, the, the way you conceptualize those terms, you know, and not make them so rigid and hard and fast, but see them, you know, see, see religion, see sciences encompassing a variety of different kinds of attitudes and practices and so on. Um, you, you know, I think it's a, it, it's a compelling argument. Do you, have you ever in any of your courses, uh, with your students gone into sort of simulation theory and sort of, uh, you know, because that, that in a way, this, you know, sort of simulation theory is almost like the uh, intersecting point between the two. You know, if you can consider that maybe that's the way of living and how it relates to our, how the world's comprised around us, you know, with very predictable patterns. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like there's a code in nature that relate that uh, is made up of numbers and geometry and in a way where if we were to develop a computer program, it'd be very much very similar. We don't, I haven't really gone off in that direction um, at all. I mean, I think um, there's probably some interesting uh, ways in which you can use that kind of methodology to think through these connections, but, um, um, but not something I'm, I 
pay much attention to. Got it. Got it. Just curious. Yeah. There's so many, um, it's a lot out there and, <laughs> you know, and there's, it's always a matter of like, sort of like which direction, which direction you even take these ideas and where do we see them going? And I'm curious for you, where, where do you, uh, you know, where's your current interest at? What, what do you have on the horizon that you're, you're currently working on? Um, my main uh, focus, uh, other than trying to get through uh, each day. <laughs> All that aside. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, thinking about the spring semester coming up. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm writing this book on religion and drugs that tries to um, bring together a lot of what we've talked about um, and, and, and give it a little more meat and, and substance in, in thinking about as I mentioned, how, how critical and how ingrained drugs are in religious and spiritual life, past, present, and certainly into the future. What, what has been the, uh, what's sort of the, the biggest challenge for you in developing that work? Definitely my interest in thinking about the connections between religion and big pharma thinking about you know, the ways in which the pharmaceutical culture that we live in has um, just completely transformed our notions of health and our ideas and expectations about um, um, how to treat illness. And it's massive. It's, it's, you know, I don't think there are people in sociology um, and um, anthropology who are studying the ways in which pills you know um have uh have have really um you know not just made an impact but really kind of uh, blown up and and reconstituted the ways we think about um about again health and identity and the body and so on to me there's very important religious uh qualities to that transformation to, to what the pharmaceutical companies and culture um, has done to our sense of spirituality. Uh, yeah. that, that, that's worth pursuing. And, and again, this is uncharted territory for sure. A kind of religious studies approach to this major social phenomenon. Um, but we, we, we talked about it a bit in the sacred drugs class. And I think it was a fa you know, one of the favorite topics for students when they started to kind of think about big pharma as it's you know its own religious culture with where people put their faith where there is a hierarchy of of um you know uh, of of religious leaders with sacred powers um where we we invest so much in this one little material object that can you know change our lives or you know make our, our lives um more than just bearable um, but give us new, you know, a sense of hope and meaning. And, and I, I just think there's so much there and I get really wild responses from people when I, when I, when I bring up this angle, um, it's either you're crazy, you know, this has nothing to do with religion or it's like, oh yeah, you know, we, you know, we do, um, live with our prescription pills in ways that, uh, tie into our religious sensibilities and, and who, who we think we are. I mean, what, what comes to mind to me immediately is sort of the psychological angle of, you know, what does religion do for you as far as, you know, having a, you know, religion's like an operating system for grappling with life and, you know, grappling with many of these milestones like, you know, birth, marriage, death. And, you know, when you, 
look at what's like, uh, or what pharmaceuticals do to help you grapple with life. You know, many people being placed on antidepressants or things of that sort, where perhaps there's sort of a, a different route that people would have taken in the past rather than sort of, sort of uh, chemical, perfect little solution um, that is, you know, could be taking away from the overall spiritual experience as a human being uh, interacting with sort of an operating system, uh, just kind of dulling those senses. Right. And I, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, I think, and, and is an interesting uh, way to think about it. And, and um, for sure, there were students who, who really saw big pharma as a uh, corrupting, um, destabilizing, you know, um, negative force in, in human life. And, and there are others who, um, you know, aren't glorifying or celebrating, can see the ways in which, you know, people turn to not, you know, not just their doctor anymore but you know turn toward these uh, pills that have to be prescribed and that can be that are psychoactive uh, to make life uh, livable to overcome the obstacles that you know may be inhibiting people from living a, a, a fulfilled life uh, that's what the pharmaceutical companies promise. And that's, you know, another um, data source, you know, when trying to talk about some of these religious aspects is looking at, certainly looking at advertising and just the kind of promises and the kind of imagery that, uh, again, is shaping certain kinds of values and certain kinds of aspirations of who one should be. Um, yeah, religion has done that <laughs> too through history. And, uh, you know, um, how, how people uh, really, as you were saying, the kind of oper operating system, you know, how, what, what, um, what works? There's a pragmatism to a lot of this, too, is like what works for people. And um, uh, so the operating system may change, but the ultimate goal is going to be the same as like, you know, how am I going to live with death? How am I going to live with my disabilities? How am I going to live with my anxieties or my depression? Um, how am I going to achieve some kind of uh, um, feeling of intoxication or, or elevation? You know, I think those bear on, on, on religious questions and pursuits. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really fascinating. And when you just look at the aim of, of a, a pharmaceutical company, it's, it's, you know, it's like similar to, you know, if you were to say like, I'm going to attempt to create a solution for depression or anxiety or what have you. Uh, and, you know, it sounds like something that, you know, maybe a shaman or priest would say or something, you know, uh, <laughs> and then also the, the, the advertisements is something that you, know, you touched on, which I find super fascinating because I believe the United States is one of the only place in the world where you can advertise pharmaceuticals. I don't know if that's uh, completely true, but those something I read a number of years ago. Uh, and it, all of the advertisements have these very, they're almost hypnotic in the way that they're showing you this like vague perspective on life, doing sort of these archetypical actions and, uh, you know, being with friends or pushing a kid on the swing. It's like just these things that, uh, you know, it's just like very day-to-day -day behaviors, but they're selling a drug and then they're speaking all these crazy uh, 
side effects, you know, at the same time, it's, it's a very strange experience just watching one of those ads. Absolutely. Cause uh, yeah, in terms of the latter point, it's double edged. I mean, even though we put faith and have all these hopes and these um, different pills, we're also, I think there's a way in which the, the description of this potential side effects or a death, you know, <laughs> it could lead to death. Yeah. <laughs> is, you know, helps, helps to infuse uh, again, the whole, um, the power of those advertisements, you know, in terms of the impact that they have, you know, this is life and death. This is about the everyday, but this is also about, you know, um, finding peace and tranquility and, and, and being able to be your normal self, your true self. Well, what the hell is that? And you know how uh, <laughs> that again, sounds very religious to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I think uh, there's probably no better time to, to be, uh, going down that path because as you know, sort of the trends that I notice are there's definitely a growing sort of resistance to these, uh, to these uh, pharmaceutical drugs as you know, I think probably everybody knows somebody that's on one of these. Um, and then also sort of on a parallel track is the emergence of these psychedelics and natural remedies and things like that. That's uh, very much, you know, um, becoming more popular than ever before. So I think that's definitely a very interesting track to go down. Listen, man, you're, uh, you're right. <laughs> and I, I feel that, you know, whenever this topic comes up or I'm able to talk with people and, or hear other people talk about it, there's, there's, it's like the zeitgeist or there's something in the air that, you know, the spirit of the times is uh, uh, primed for really trying to um, bring drugs to the light of, of uh, day in a very different light than how we've uh, thought about drugs before. And, and so it's, it's really, there, there is a sense of a moment that's here that is tied to what you're talking about. And, and again, to just looking around our culture and realizing, as you said, and as I like to uh, say to my students, um, realizing that we are all on drugs. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, what does that mean? This, you know, that, that, that ubiquity is, in itself of, of, uh, a symptom of something. It's telling us something. Yeah. It's really, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Um, one, uh, line that just came to mind from the, uh, Will Durant that I'm reading, you know, historian Friedel is, uh, you know, goes through all of history, but it says no civilization ever made it without some narcotics, something along those lines, you know, like that we were ever able to bear life without some form of narcotics. So it seems like something that, uh, while we can, point to those things in our life today it's been an eternal uh experience with well, humans and going through life with different stimulants and uh ways of grappling and changing our state right well i mean that's key and then you know that also leads to the question is not just that every civilization has a narcotic of some kind but then the argument and the scientific argument that's out there is that we you know that uh, we're wired to be intoxicated, to seek out intoxication, like that this is something, and there's a book called Intoxication by a, a psychopharmacologist, I think. Um, intoxication, he calls it the fourth drive and you know, makes the argument uh, looking not just at, at um, studies of humans, but studies of animals and seeing you know, mm. clear examples of ways in which an certain animals will um, go and seek out certain kinds of uh, plants or substances that will intoxicate them. And, and so 
for for this argument it's this, this is built in it's part of what it means to be human is to find ways to get out of our head um and and you know experience some kind of again, yeah. ecstasy ecstasy intoxication altered state of consciousness and 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 so that that is totally interesting to me <laughs> thinking about you know again what what it means for our own self-understanding of our relationship to drugs and religion yeah, there, there's a, that you could go on and on, you know, it's so much, uh, so much to consider there. And I, I look forward to your book cause it sounds like you're, you're going to hit this right, this nail right on the head. So, um, it's exciting stuff. Thanks. Cool. Well, Gary, man, I really appreciate your time today. This has been phenomenal. I, I feel like I could ask you questions all day and, um, and, you know, I love the work that you're doing with this stuff. I, I appreciate your previous work also just in this space. I think it gives, you know, people a lot of uh, different perspectives and, um, you know, especially if you're able to reach college age students at, at a, you know, right point in their mental development where this is probably very mind blowing and uh, very highly interesting to consider stuff. So it's, I really appreciate the stuff that you do, Gary. Hey, thanks, man. I, I appreciate what you do too. And it's great talking with you. I, I, I do appreciate the invitation and your time. Thank you. Well, uh, hopefully we can connect again in the future. And, uh, and you know, as, as I'm sure uh, society will continue down this uh, uh, wild pathway between uh, this endless struggle between or endless relationship between death, drugs, and religion, I'm sure there'll be a lot more to talk about in the future. I'd love to come back and, and talk more for sure. Awesome. Thank you, Gary. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.